Hi everyone, Luke here. Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It's the week ending Friday 18th of November and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, we head to a climate cafe to speak with some leading youth activists about managing the impacts of the climate crisis personally and professionally. Having attended COP26 last year, the thing that we recognised again and again is that there weren't actually spaces for people to come together, have really open, kind of honest conversations about the climate crisis. And particularly at a time like COP, where you have lots of world leaders coming together to make decisions about our collective future, that anxiety can go to record highs because we're seeing inaction, we're seeing that we're kind of locked out of decisions affecting us all. Then we're off to discuss the potentially transformative role of hydrogen tech on the food and drinks industry. The ambition is to achieve net zero Mm -hmm. and really what we're trying to do is find the perfect balance between energy efficiency which should always be the starting point for any energy transition, electrifying what we can and using hydrogen to provide not only a storage medium but also as an effective way actually of decarbonising some of those more difficult things. And as COP27 draws to a close we'll be speaking live with a top legislator about the big climate successes failures and remaining grey areas from this year's summit. Plus, we'll be talking the impacts of the energy price crisis, going all in for 1.5 degrees, and we'll be serving up part two of our Top of the Cops quiz. All of that and more covered in this week's episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, hello and welcome along to Sustainability Uncovered. You're listening once again to ED's content director, Luke Nichols, for episode two of this new series of the pod, I'm pleased to say that the show hasn't died an early death yet. We're back to bring you some of the most inspiring and exciting sustainability and climate action stories from across the globe. And I'm sat once again uh, in a bit of a makeshift podcast studio here at Edie's headquarters in West Sussex in the UK. Uh, The studio is still a bit of a work in progress, I must say. It might still sound a bit echoey. I've I've been reliably informed we're investing in some more of this uh, moss to my right. to, to cover the walls, I guess a nature-based solution in action there, um, and make things a bit more soundproofed apparently. Um, but we'll be making the most of what we've got for now. I'm, I'm delighted to say I'm joined once again by the Anton Deck of Sustainable Business, the RED's content editor Matt Mace and senior reporter Sarah George. Matt, um, in the last episode we celebrated your birthday in style and um, you're clearly getting old because I'm sorry to say you've done your back in. Um, how are you doing right now? Yeah, literally turned 31 and physically seemed to have fallen off a, a cliff edge. Um, got a very bad back, hurt it, hurt it on a run. Um, one of the few things I actually enjoy doing in my spare time is running, so it felt quite cruel that one of my, uh, one of my hobbies actually hurt me in that sense. Um, but I basically pulled a muscle that's near my spine and all the other muscles around it have kind of ceased up as a result. So I'm very, very rigid, um, but you know, you don't you don't need to you don't need to move around mm. in a podcast here, so. No, well yeah, COP twenty seven has been a tense process, so I'm sure that's had a part to play there, but um God, yeah, well, take it easy. Um, you've given me an idea as well. I think in addition to the moss, we should maybe look at getting maybe some massage chairs or something in the, in the studio. Very nice, yeah. Yeah, before that, maybe one of those little uh, feet bowls with the fish that clean you. Yeah. He's <laughs> the stresses. Yeah. Um, speaking of stress, Sarah, um, I'm not suggesting you look stressful over there, but you've been working around the clock with, with Matt on our COP coverage, which draws to a close, of course, this week. These summits have always pretty stressful to follow, let alone cover every single day. So how, how are you feeling after this whirlwind couple of weeks? I wouldn't be offended if you did say that I'd look stressed. I was going to make a joke that I'm definitely the um, ant out of Ant and Dick because he tends to be the more stressed um, one. Nonetheless, it is a huge privilege to be covering everything um, that's been going on in Sharm and to hear inspiring stories from the people that are genuinely trying to make change, the youth campaigners, the Indigenous representatives. And then just this morning, I've seen that AOC in the US has 
told John Kerry to stop faffing around mm. and get real on loss and damage. Mm. Um, so looking for some success stories where I can in this in this um, long process. Mm. Yeah, it's been a, it has been a long process, a pretty intense couple of weeks for us here, and um, it would be a bit of a cop out conclusion, pun always intended, but perhaps to sort of summarise things now, it is a little bit too soon to tell just how successful this summit has been. We've have have had some pretty Notable new pledges and commitments made, particularly things like the Sharm el Sheikh adaptation agenda from week one, that all-in declaration, which came a few uh, days ago from more than 200 businesses to try and achieve the aims of the Paris Agreement, which we might discuss a bit later on in the show. Anyway, rather than us sitting here from the offset and analysing what's gone on at COP from afar, I think we should speak to someone who's been there on the ground and, and give us some first-hand reflections from Sharm. Uh, and Matt, as if by magic, you've got someone lined up for us on a video call right now, don't you? Yeah, I um, I worked my magic, put the feelers out and to see who, who would be around and who would be able to um, have a chat with us. And they, they've been out there in some capacity. Um, I believe they're, they're back home now, resting up after a hectic first week. It seems to be the case of cops. The first week have this mass of people to it. The second week is much more mm. focused on, on the, the dedicated press and the the negotiators out there, but um, we're going to be speaking to uh, Nicholas Dunlop, who's the Secretary General of the Climate Parliament. Um, I would explain who the Climate Parliament are, but we, we're actually going to um, speak to Nick. He's going to put it much more uh, eloquently than I ever could, but they're, they're essentially this uh, international uh, collective, and they've been out in uh, doing some great work with some of the, the kind of architects around the original Paris Agreement. Okay, uh, so uh, with any luck, we've got him on the call with us right now. Nicholas, um, hello. I was going to start with how are you and, and where are you, but I assume you're, you're not at COP, you're not at Sharm el-Sheikh. No, hi Luke. I, I was uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh for some days, but I'm back in Brighton, where I'm based most of the time, near London. Ah, very nice. Yeah, not too far from, from our, our headquarters in West Sussex. Um, so let's, let's start with a little bit about the Climate Parliament for, for our listeners who perhaps are unaware. What, what is the Climate Parliament? What does it represent? The Climate Parliament's uh, an international network of members of Parliament, cross-party, so from across the political spectrum, MPs, members of Congress who um, are concerned about climate change and, and want to use their many levers that are at their disposal, from parliamentary oversight to amending budgets to making laws, their access to government leaders, heads of government, uh, to help accelerate the global response. Our focus has been particularly in recent years on uh, accelerating the, the energy transition since 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from fossil fuels. The single biggest thing we've got to do is to switch from fossil fuels to renewable energy incredibly fast. And in terms of COP27 then, uh, you say you've been out there in Sharm, how is the climate parliament, how have you been getting involved? Who's, who has been out there on the ground um, throughout the last couple of weeks and what have been your sort of main messages while you've been there? Yes, we had a, a meeting of about 100 members of parliament, mostly from Africa and Asia, in particular Africa on this occasion, um, many of them women parliamentarians in Luxor, upriver, up the Nile, uh, the weekend before the COP opened. And we had a dialogue there with members of uh, the donor community and business leaders, CEOs of some major renewable energy developers, uh, the Green Climate Fund, the Swedish Development Agency and various others um, uh, about uh, how we can build the new clean energy system in all parts of the world fast enough to stay within a, a safe global carbon budget. And then quite a few of the MPs went on to Sham uh, in various capacities, some of them as part of their national delegations. And in Sham, we, we had further discussions and, and finally a press conference that were stimulated by uh, really by Laurence Tubiana, who came and joined us in Luxor as a keynote speaker. She was the chief negotiator of the Paris Agreement as the French climate envoy during and, and in the run-up to the Paris Climate Summit in 2015. So she's she's kind of like the main parent of the Paris Agreement, which is the the framework on which we are hanging our slender hopes for, for preventing a, a global climate catastrophe. And she uh, uh, 
proposed uh, very, very convincingly that that uh, members of parliament and members of Congress should be much more involved in in implementation of the Paris Agreement. They should be more involved in the COP process uh, at the global level. They should be more involved in overseeing the implementation of the nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, the promises that uh, that, that the governments make at the COP. Uh, you know, today probably only a, a minority of the world's elected legislators would really have any idea of what's in their country's NDC. Quite a few of them wouldn't even know what NDC stands for. Very few would have a clue how their country is doing uh, relative to the promises that the government has made at, at various COPs. And, um, you know, this this is one reason why progress is so slow. So we, we we're arguing, um, and we totally agree with Laurence, that, that uh, it's time, you know, given the urgency, given that, that the process today is not responding to the, the uh, really dire outlook that we are now, that we are now facing, um, uh, it's time for elected legislators from across the political spectrum to, to, get, to, to really get stuck in, to get much more involved at the COP, to get involved in implementation, both at the regional and national levels. And we've been giving a lot of thought to that in the last, uh, in the last couple of weeks. And uh, Nick, it's, uh, it's Matt here from um, ED. And I wanted to, to jump on that at that point. You mentioned it, it's time um, that, that this kind of ambition does turn into action. And I'd like to get your thoughts on whether you personally feel that this COP, um, bear in mind we're in the, the kind of closing stages of it, um, whether it has kind of met those ambitions yet, whether it has kind of taken what was made at Glasgow and indeed in Paris and, and, and kind of started that pathway to net zero, or whether you feel that there's still much more that needs to be done. Well, one of Laurence Toubiana's big achievements in Paris was to get the target of 1.5 degrees into the Paris Agreement, uh, and that was reaffirmed at the Glasgow summit last year. Uh, back in Paris in 2015, I was there. I remember the, the uh, you know, most of the major players really wanted to focus on two degrees. Some of them still do. Uh, and it was the small island states that were campaigning <laughs> around the conference centers saying, for us, that many of us simply at two degrees, we sink beneath the waves. It's, it's not an acceptable target. Um, and uh, they're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, if you look at what's happening in the, wor in the world today, where somewhere, depending who you, who, who, who you listen to and how they count, some, where some, some way between 1.1 and 1.2 degrees up from pre-industrial temperatures today, Pakistan has just had a single flood disaster in which it lost more than 50% of its livestock. And we're seeing just intensifying climate impacts, terrible drought in East Africa and many other parts of the world, uh, a terrible drought in, in Europe, you know, Europe, Europe's rivers running drier than ever before uh, this, this last summer. All over the world, you, you, you're seeing uh, real disasters, storms, floods, um, uh, heat waves and so on, which is bad enough now, but if we go even to 1.5 degrees, it, it's going to be much, much worse, that's clear. Now, the IPCC, the, science, the UN Scientific Panel, has been very clear too in, in their recent reports about what our carbon budgets are. They, they said that in 2020, if we uh, wanted to keep, have, let's say, a two-thirds chance of keeping the planet's temperature rise below 1.5 degrees, the remaining budget for carbon dioxide emissions was 400 gigatons between now and forever because the, the carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere it hangs around most of it hangs around for centuries and uh, that that means that current emissions rates they estimated in their last report of 43 gigatons of carbon dioxide a year 
by 2030 at current emissions rates, that budget is gone. The chance of having, you know, a good chance of, of achieving 1.5 degrees is gone. That's why everybody's saying we have to be halfway down in global emissions by 2030 and, and uh, all the way down to net zero global emissions well before 2050. So what's happening? What's happening? In Glasgow last year, various commitments were made that add up to a 15% increase in global emissions by 2030, going in the wrong direction. No sign of the of the rapid global reduction uh, uh, that we that we desperately need is on the horizon. And you know, you 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 go to Sham, and there's quite a few countries, including African countries, some of them that are very, very vulnerable to climate change, saying we need to have the right to drill up, uh, you know, every cubic meter of gas and every every drop of oil under Africa. Uh, you, you've got you've got some of the big emitters pushing to focus a bit more again on two degrees rather than 1.5. You've got Europe making a dash for gas in response to the Ukraine situation and, and some European countries encouraging the Africans to, to drill for gas. Um, you know, it's just like reality hasn't dawned, I'm afraid. And, and uh, you know, there's one discussion among the scientists who, when you poll the IPCC scientists privately, the majority of them think we're heading for three degrees within this century, uh, which would render much of the tropics uninhabitable, according to some studies of what that would mean in terms of average temperature across the tropics on land. Um, and then you've got the discussion among the governments, which is as if this really isn't a problem, you know. Uh, they all pay lip service to it, but when you look at what they're doing, they, they, they foresee most of them uh, the fossil fuel industry going merrily forward into the future. There's just a complete Alice in Wonderland feeling that I get when I go to the COP these days. I, I did want to maybe try and um, add some hope to this, Nick. I know that this is super important, but I also wondered whether you said that in the past, maybe elected officials haven't been engaged as much as they should have. So is now an opportune moment to get them involved with the science um, as you mentioned, and then a lot of world leaders actually used their um, platform at this COP to say, you know, the energy crisis um, and food systems disruption are not an excuse to back down from this, an excuse to go, it's a reason to go further and faster and to involve more people, essentially. So is, is now a good time to start involving more elected officials? I think absolutely, uh, for a few different reasons. For, firstly, you've got to ask yourself, who, who has the mandate to bring about uh, a, a really fast global energy transition to clean energy. It's not the tens of thousands of national officials that populate the COP, uh, you know, the, the climate negotiators and so on. National officials have a very important role to play in, in implementing decisions, but the decision for a rapid transformation of the global energy system can and will only be made by politicians. Uh, elected politicians are the only people who have that mandate. It's not business leaders, it's not NGO people like myself who are kind of self-appointed representatives. It's, uh, it's, it's the people who, you know, have, have been in most countries elected to, to office, who, who, who have the right to make those decisions. So we need to get them more involved in the process. Our plan is to bring a representative group of members of parliament to the COPs in the future, um, perhaps about 350, uh, three, from, three each from larger countries, two each from medium-sized countries, one each from small countries, something like that, the size of a medium-sized parliament, national parliament, and, and form them into committees and have them start holding hearings where they invite climate envoys, international officials, business leaders, and so on, in for questioning. And then at the regional level to bring them together as well, um, to work on things that need to be done at the regional level, like building big continental scale green grids that connect everybody to the best locations for wind and solar power, um, which is an essential part of the global energy transition. And it can only be done if politicians across each region are collaborating to make it happen really fast. Speaking of 
optimism, Sarah. Uh, you know, the one really optimistic thing that we all refer to all the time, but it's very true, is is that if you go to the best locations for solar and wind power with the most abundant resource and you use long distance transmission to link the main demand centers to those places, you get incredibly cheap, clean energy, far cheaper than anything that can be delivered by coal, oil or gas. I mean, Aqua Power, which was represented, whose CEO was with us in our Luxor meeting, Paddy Padmanabhan, their latest contract for a, a big desert power station in Saudi Arabia is to deliver electricity, solar power, for one cent a kilowatt hour, just a whisker over one cent a kilowatt hour. That is, you know, there's just no fossil fuel that could even begin to compete. So, uh, you know, they need to be working together more at the regional level and they need to be overseeing the implementation of the NDCs and pushing for stronger NDCs at the national level. And if we can make that happen, it will help. Nicholas, um, we could probably sit here and talk to you for the rest of the show, but um, you're a busy man and, and probably also rather knackered, you and your colleagues, I imagine. So um, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for, for talking with us and, and best of luck with everything there at, at Climate Parliament. All right. Well. Uh, Thanks for the conversation. I appreciate being invited. Thank you so much. Okay. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, well, there you have it. Thanks uh, once again to Climate Parliament's co-founder and Secretary-General Nicholas Dunlop. It'll be really interesting to follow the work of Climate Parliament uh, off the back of COP and into 2023, so we'd be sure to keep in touch with, with him. Right, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm all copped out for now. I think it's about time we went somewhere else with the pod, outside of these four walls. Um, and the good news is, Sarah, you've been a, a real-life roaming reporter over the past couple of weeks, um, all in the name of the Sustainability Uncovered podcast. Uh, and the first segment I've got written down in front of me involves two words, both of which I'm very close to, uh, climate cafe. Um, so what's that all about? Why were you there, aside from a free coffee? Um, I mean, yeah, just the free coffee, really. I'm just kidding. Um, essentially, climate cafes um, have been set up in London at the Natural History Museum, which is where I was, and all across the UK um, by Force of Nature, which some people might have heard about. Um, it's an organisation working to help support youth climate workers um, and to help them advise other organisations, really, so brands can be challenged by them, for example, is, is one of their work streams. Um, and the idea of having climate cafes was to um, bring together people who are frustrated from being excluded um, at COP and also to communicate with people who aren't really sure about how they feel or what's going on to work through some of their feelings and to answer some of their frequently asked questions. So yeah, last week I was at the biggest one in the UK at the Natural History Museum um, in London and I was delighted to get some more information about everything that was going on from um, Force of Nature's founder Clover Hogan um, and from the science team at the Natural History Museum as, as well, recapping on what's been going on and as well how they're going to keep the conversation going after all of this comes to a close. Mm. Well, the concept does sound fascinating, so let's get straight into it then. So here's Sarah at the Climate Cafe in the Natural History Museum speaking with Force of Nature founder Clover Hogan and the museum's data scientist Adriana De Palma. Yes, so for this next bit of the podcast, I am in London's Natural History Museum and we have managed to find a quiet room away from the hustle and bustle um, of all the school trips and of the main cafe and the climate cafe um, that is here during COP. And I'm delighted to have Clover here um, with me, one of the driving forces behind the climate cafe and also Adriana, who's working um, in the museum's academic um, team. So great to be here. Clover, can you tell us a little bit about like the birth of the idea for the Climate Cafe? We're sat in a room that actually has a whiteboard with a strategy for it. Um, so I'd love to hear like where that idea came from and what the practicalities were from sort of taking that idea and making it a real cafe at one of London's biggest and busiest museums. Yeah, so as a little background, um, Force of Nature, uh, the youth nonprofit that has hosted the cafe, was born a few years ago um, from a place of needing that we need to 
recognizing that we need to have more conversations about climate emotions. Um, Force of Nature has conducted a lot of research around the rise of eco-anxiety, so understanding the mental health implications of the climate crisis, particularly on young people, particularly on scientists who are kind of on the research front lines of the crisis. And so uh, all of our work the past few years has been creating these spaces, but primarily virtually. And uh, having attended COP26 last year, the thing that we recognized again and again is that there weren't actually spaces for people to come together, have really open, kind of honest conversations about the climate crisis. And particularly at a time like COP, where you have lots of world leaders coming together to make decisions about our collective future, that anxiety can go to record highs because we're seeing inaction, we're seeing that we're kind of locked out of decisions affecting us all. So the, the real catalyst for the Climate Cafe was, you know, as the spotlight turns to Egypt for COP27, how do we create spaces in our own communities, our own neighborhoods to host climate conversations? And so this flagship cafe that we have here at the Natural History Museum has been on for this week, the first week of COP. Um, but simultaneously, there are over 100 decentralized climate cafes happening around the world where other young people in their own neighborhoods are hosting similar conversations. Um, so that's really the kind of background. And we hope that this is a legacy tool so that people continue hosting their own climate cafes. And this amazing one we've hosted at the NHM um, is merely a template for what those conversations can look like. Great, you've literally jumped ahead to my last conversation about um, how we keep this going between um, COPs, but we can come back to that later. And you mentioned the importance of having youth here, and there are a lot of great youth speakers on the agenda, um, but equally we have scientists and some great other external speakers, one of them being Adriana, who's here with me. I know that you're speaking this afternoon um, in the cafe, so it would be great hearing about how the academics here at the museum are contributing to the cafes and why that's so important. So I think the Natural History Museum is actually a rather unique institution when it comes to scientists because we're not just encouraged to understand the natural world and understand the crisis that we're facing, but we're also encouraged to actively engage with politicians, with companies, with the public, to try and help them understand the problems that we're facing, but also empower them through knowledge when it comes to what the solutions might be. And you know, at the museum, there's lots of us working in this space, but we're not just trying to push, you know, make everyone an advocate for the planet. It's also really important that we also work with organizations like Force of Nature so that they're supported in those activities, so that they feel you know, that they can be helpful without putting all of this on their shoulders. Um, so that's, that's the challenge that we face as scientists and why it's so important that we're working with, with people like Force of Nature. It's that idea that everyone has a role to play and it's figuring out exactly what that is. Um, and we're speaking like a few days into the cafe. I know that there has been some train issues, um, but I was going to ask about what it's been like so far other than that. So what's the turnout been like and what, what kind of people have you guys seen coming along? This has been such an interesting learning for us um, as a youth climate nonprofit because we're used to engaging in spaces where people are already talking about climate change. So there's this natural kind of echo chamber effect that happens where young people approach us because they're concerned about the climate crisis or we'll go to COP and host an initiative there. Um, so it's been really different engaging with people who might just be visiting the museum for a nice day out, you know, might be tourists in the city, um, are probably, you know, coming to see um, lots of incredible you know nature-based artifacts and that type of thing but aren't necessarily coming to divulge their emotions about climate change um, so it's been a really interesting lesson on some of the different language and communication tools you need to use to make sure that the conversation does feel accessible and to acknowledge that everyone's at a really different point in that journey um, so the turnout has been really really incredible but we've had to experiment with a few different techniques to get people into the space um, from dressing up in a giant earth suit um, to not even mentioning the word climate and just saying, hey, would you like to come into the space and maybe interact with the scientists? And I actually think the, the science corner, which we've been hosting every day where we'll have Adriana this afternoon, has been a real highlight for people. Um, we you know, might read the science in an article or in a paper, but how often do we actually get the opportunity to sit down with the scientists and have a really open, kind of honest conversation with them? So I think the public have really, really enjoyed that space um, to connect on a superhuman level. 
And I know you said you do a lot on eco-anxiety, so have you found that it's more people coming and talking about their feelings about what's going on? Or is it more like, I have this question about what's going on at Carpods, this question about what this jargon around climate means? Yeah, well, you know, one of the challenges that we've come up against is even if we invite people to come and talk about climate, often the default response is, oh, no, that's too depressing or that's too sad. I don't want to think about that. And so I think we're lots of us are really used to shutting down some of those emotions because it is really heavy and it's really, really difficult. So we're really trying to frame this as a safe kind of open space for anyone of any perspective or opinion to come in and you know just sit down over a cup of tea Um, but it's really ranged I think most of the young people who've come in have been very vocal about their eco-anxiety whereas some of the older folks who've come into the space are more curious to learn about you know what is COP or um, what do these activists do or again have a conversation about you know flies with a scientist um, or about the importance of biodiversity so it's been it's been a real range and it's been amazing to see that the conversation is so diverse. Got it, Adriano. I see you nodding along there. Do you have anything to add on, yeah, the sort of conversations that you've been seeing or that you might be expecting later today? I think I just kind of wanted to add that as as a scientist, sometimes the hope in our stories gets really lost. So you know, we we are of course finding some really worrying trends in the natural world but then we're also finding in our predictions that you know if we make changes now we can actually undo the last 50 years of damage and sometimes that bit of hope in our science gets lost when we just rely on kind of broad scale you know media coverage and our scientific papers and things like that so actually engaging in the climate cafe and other events like it gives us an opportunity to try and yeah kind of help people see the positive that can be done that it's not just all doom and gloom that actually if we come together even the science says we can make a difference and we can turn things around and obviously at the moment there's a lot of media coverage about is cop 27 an opportunity to turn things around but something we've got coming up next month so the 15th biodiversity cop is definitely an opportunity to turn things around with the agreement of a new um, set of global biodiversity goals for for this decade and I know that you've been doing a lot of great work on biodiversity including some of the stuff on the economics of biodiversity here in the UK um, and with helping policymakers, yeah across the world with this with this issue so it would be great to hear a little bit about your work in the lead up to COP15. So at the museum we've developed something called the Biodiversity Trends Explorer where essentially anyone but it's mainly aimed at policymakers can look at our website and they can go to their specific country or region of interest and see okay what's been happening to biodiversity so far how did we get to the point we're at now and where might we be going in the future depending on what policy decisions we make as kind of a global community what's biodiversity going to look like in the next 50 100 years so it's really trying to give policymakers the evidence they need to make sustainable choices because what we see in the data is that a more sustainable world isn't just good for biodiversity it's also good for equality it's about a sustainable planet as a whole for everyone yeah i think this interconnected nature is something that people have really been noticing especially over the past couple of years so fingers crossed that there's some actual credible joined up thinking um, next next month and I want to come back to something that we usually get asked when there's something pop up like a cafe or even something brief like a COP biodiversity or climate people say oh well this is such an important piece of work how do we keep the momentum going um, in between times so it'd be great to hear from both of you what you'll be up to in the coming months um, to round us off. Great question um, yeah I think you know coming back to COP it's such an important instrument. It's the only time where we get all these member states, all these countries around a table, all these leaders in a room to you know, really talk about how we solve the climate crisis and translate those words into action. And yet I think the fact that this is COP27 is evidence that 
these tools alone will not solve the crisis. We need lots of different methods and solutions and approaches. And for us, you know, climate cafes are one small piece of that equation. I think people within community are looking for spaces where they can come together, have conversations, particularly at a time that feels so kind of polarized and divisive. Um, I think particularly when climate can be so overwhelming um, and can be a real source of despair. So for us, the focus uh, for the next few months is really just ensuring the legacy of the climate cafes. Um, we did a big fundraising effort for the cafes to be able to distribute micro grants to remove any accessibility barriers. So those 100 plus cafes I mentioned, um, making sure that any young person, no matter their background or experience, has the resource they need to host their cafes. Um, that's really going to be our focus. And going into next year, you know, forging more partnerships with amazing organizations like the Natural History Museum. I think this type of uh, intervention or initiative is just such a great case study for why we need different types of organizations coming together. I know for me personally the Natural History Museum has been a huge part of my journey as an environmentalist. I remember being absolutely awestruck the first time I walked through these halls um, and so it's so great to see a space like this working with a youth-based organization so more of that cross-stakeholder collaboration um, is absolutely what I want to see. And can you give us a little peep of what you're up to in the next few months or any advice on keeping the momentum going when, yeah, you've been through a big, busy event and you're not sure what to do next? <laughs> so the science is obviously an ongoing process. That is, you know, will be going on for my lifetime and many lifetimes after that. But in terms of, in terms of momentum for us at the museum it's really about engaging people with that science so working with force of nature attending cop 15 and trying to connect people with our work so we've joined up with iconario to produce an art piece which it really helps people connect with the damage that we're doing to biodiversity because it's easy to kind of see a graph and go oh well you know biodiversity is declining by x percent halfway around the world without really feeling it. So we've got this art piece with, with Iconario where the plant is it's kind of a mechanical plant and it will grow as biodiversity increases and it wilts as biodiversity declines and it really kind of tugs at your heartstrings in a way that data often doesn't. Um, so for us, as I say, at the museum, it's really about working to try and engage with all these different audiences through different methods and with, with different people. Got it. Well, guys, that has definitely left me feeling a lot more inspired. Thank you both so much for your time and let's head back down to the cafe. Super. Thank you so much. Great stuff. Uh, the Climate Cafe concept is a fascinating one indeed. Um, so thanks very much again to Clover and to Adriana for, for talking us through it all. Did you get to go around the Natural History Museum afterwards, Sarah? I sadly didn't have time. I had a lot to do in terms of Roundup, but um, the room that we recorded in was sort of tucked away in the museum, so I did get a chance to look at, yeah, some birds, some <laughs> fossils. Um, I, I always forget what the replacement for Dippy the Dinosaur is called, um, but did get to go into, like, the big entry hallway as, as well, briefly. Dippy the Dinosaur gets a mention on the pod. Um, no, it is my favourite of the museums, particularly the wildlife photographer wildlife photographer of the year exhibition for anyone who likes their wildlife and their photography anyway at risk of this pod taking a completely different direction let's take a break now uh, matt will give you some time to stand up and, and take a walk around to avoid your back seizing up again and for the rest of you please don't go anywhere because when we return we'll be talking hydrogen powered breweries plus uh, we're not quite able to recreate the world cup here in the studio but we do have our world famous top of the cops quiz back for part two after this short break You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. I am joined here still in the studio by Edie's Matt Mace and Sarah George. Um, now, I mentioned before the break that I was feeling a bit copped out. Um, I'm sure some of our listeners are too. 
So I thought before we move into our, our next interview segment, Sarah and Matt, you could perhaps enlighten us with a bit of uh, some recent stories from across the world of sustainability and, and climate action. I suppose they can be related to COP, but ideally kind of business-focused stories uh, aside from some of the bigger climate summits and, and politics. Um, I am putting you both a bit on the spot here, but Sarah, let's start with you. Um, give us your sort of top story that's come out of the past couple of weeks. Okay, I'm putting this top purely because it's been taking up a lot of my time, which is that I have been writing up the results of our latest net zero business barometer survey. Um, so we polled almost 150 energy and sustainability leaders from different organisations, mainly in the UK, um, um, to take like a snapshot of net zero progress um, across their sectors. Um, and this time around, we ask several questions about the impact that the energy price crisis and broader um, economic crisis is having um, on the net zero transition. And it's, it's a bit of a mixed picture. Um, the significant majority of people that came back to us three quarters said that the energy price crisis was having at least a moderate impact on their organisation's ability to develop and deliver on reducing emissions. Um, thankfully, 24% said their organisation is now going further and faster because of this, because being more energy efficient and using less gas is a way to cut prices. Mm. Um, but worryingly, we did find that one in five businesses, so 20% of people, um, feel that their employer is being forced to deprioritise net zero a little bit. Um, and even more worryingly, still one in 10 said that they might not meet their long-term carbon. That's a bit of jargon, isn't it? <laughs> Their wow, long-term yeah. carbon targets um, because of what's going on um, at the moment. So a shameless plug for the Barometer report, which we're hosting in association with Inspired Energy. Um, you can find that on ed.net by using our resources tab um, yeah. at the top to find out more about all those stats that I've just whittled off. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, we haven't seen much come out in, in terms of the direct impacts of the energy price crisis on business, aside from obviously the cost implications, but from an actual sustainability and net zero standpoint, I suppose in some ways it's, I don't want to say it's logical, but it was, it felt inevitable that it's going to impact those investments that some of which are a bit longer term. And so it's forcing businesses to think shorter term yet again, and look at investments that have got a much quicker payback, like energy efficiency and things. So I suppose it's not nice to say, but it almost comes as no surprise, doesn't it, that we're already seeing a percentage of big businesses, we should say as well, um, having to change the direction of their net zero strategies. So mm. And scary. even more for SMEs, probably, mm. as, as these things always go. Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, uh, thanks very much for that. Matt, uh, or Deck, I suppose, if I was to use the introductions from earlier on, regale us with your kind of standout susty story from the past week or so. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do a bit of a cop-out pun intended, and, and focus on a story that, that was announced at COP, but um, doesn't have any real impact on, on the negotiations there, and it is, it is business-focused. Um, the main reason I want to choose it is because um, one, of the, one of the things that people don't realise about COPs is that us journalists, we have to work through the weekend um, <laughs> for it. Not just the first week when they only have one rest day, which is a Sunday, but the negotiations tend to spill over into the following weekend. So cast your mind back to Saturday, uh, which was the 12th of November. Um, some of you might remember it for Arsenal going five points clear at the top of the table. Yeah. Um, others, you know, maybe maybe you know City losing in the last minute at home. You know, whatever reason you remember it for, I remember it for, for working uh, the morning shift um, at COP27 or on COP27. And one of the big stories that came out was from the We Mean Business uh, Coalition, which has been a real... Um, prominent driver of the message around the, the need for energy for 1.5C and, and you know we've got thousands of companies regions cities investors that are all kind of committed or committing to this science-based approach 1.5C um, and the Weaning Business Coalition kind of issued a, a declaration uh, of action to meet 1.5C they published it on Agriculture Day on that Saturday at, at COP27 uh, and basically kind of said that um, World leaders and the, the kind of the decision makers need to decide where they stand on this. The, the call to action was, we're, we're in for this, we're in for 1.5C, are you? Um, the, the kind of suggestion was that there's too much kind of semantics and, and getting bogged down into the, into the who pays. It's not a collective mm. action towards a net zero world. It's very much, a, well, we'll do our bit, but we won't kind of do any more. Um, so it was, a, it was a kind of nice 
jolt of, of optimism from the from the corporate community in in a time where perhaps that optimism in terms of global climate action is lacking at a kind of political level. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this was a great example of businesses actually calling out politicians, which which you very rarely see um, on the on the climate crisis. There's an agreement to work with it, and this was kind of like, are you with us or or, mm-hmm. or not? And I, I did, I did. Um, I remember writing that up Saturday morning, being like, "Okay, this is actually quite strongly worded um, for a for a business coalition. It does kind of put the the fear out there, and hopefully that there is an answer to that, and that it is that that yes, world leaders are in with them." Mm. Yeah, exactly, and I suppose made for a good weekend for you and as an Arsenal fan. Um, Didn't want to say it, but yeah, even though I did say it. <laughs> Well, thanks very much for that. Two great picks for this week. Now, let's keep the momentum going with this episode of Sustainability Uncovered because, Sarah, you've been pretty busy these last few weeks taking tours and press trips left, right and centre. Uh, it does seem like you're picking the best of the bunch because we've been off to cafes and to pubs or breweries, I think, now. Tell us a bit more about this next interview segment. I'm kind of loath to because I haven't actually been to a hydrogen-powered brewery, but I have been to learn a little bit more about how we can transition to hydrogen-powered breweries. So the UK arm of AB InBev, Budweiser Brewing Group, is working with Protium, a green hydrogen producer, um, to install green hydrogen generation near its brewery in South Wales. Um, This is a really big project but could have significant impact on decarbonising the processes at the brewery. It's a very heat intensive process and as such you can shift to renewable electricity is really difficult, it's hard to electrify the process. And they had an event outlining a bit more about this big project and doing a little mini tour at their Camden town um, brewery which is not hydrogen fired Mm. um, but is a nice SME brewery really with a lot of built in sustainability features. we did an episode specifically on hydrogen earlier this year. I climbed all the top, all the way to the top of a gas-fired power plant to bring you that episode. It was one of our best lesson two of the of the year. Hydrogen is definitely like a hot topic um, at the moment, so it was great to go along to Camden Town and learn a little bit more about what hydrogen-powered breweries will look like in the future. Hopefully, in a few years, you can introduce this, and we will be at. <laughs> hydrogen-powered brewery. Yeah, I thought that was having everyone the dream when I saw that written down in front of me. Um, really interesting to hear this one, though. So um, let's get Sarah's chat with uh, AB InBev's Sustainability Lead for Europe, uh, Yeleni Deneva, and Proteum's Chief Executive, Chris Jackson. Here it is in full. Yeah, so for this part of the podcast, in a bit of change of scenery, I'm very far from home. Um, I am at Camden Town Brewery and there is a hydrogen electric truck parked up and there's a lot of people wandering around with uh, name badges and little protium symbols on them and I'm delighted to be sat down to learn a little bit more about the future of hydrogen in UK brewing. So Chris, who better to ask than yourself? Thank you for, for taking the time today. No, pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Um, having us, so she says. <laughs> very rude of me. Um, and we can come on to that. So essentially, I'm here um, because um, AB InBev is looking to be generating and using green hydrogen at its brewery in Wales with the support of Proteum. So Chris, if you could give us a little bit of a flavour of what that project entails and where it's at at the moment, just to set the scene, that'd be great. Sure. So um, setting the scene, the Megor Brewery is the largest brewery in the UK and Proteum is working with Budweiser at that brewery to develop co-located green hydrogen production from a technology called an electrolyzer that splits water into hydrogen and oxygen and we're building near to the site solar and wind that we will be connecting to the hydrogen production facility and using these assets together we will be decarbonizing the power from the brewery, the heat used in the brewing process and the number of the vehicles as well as the forklifts that operate on the site. I can come on to our resident AB InBev expert. I wanted to ask why hydrogen for brewing? Why not electrify this or look at different fuels? So how does hydrogen fit, fit in for this industry? I think from a, from a perspective of a brewer, um, we are uh, an industry where we are um, where we are using a lot of energy. We are producing uh, also wastewater. Uh, and with the process that Chris just described, um, the electrolyzing process it's actually a possibility to for them to use our wastewater and to um, uh, yeah to for us to use their waste energy from the production process uh, which is then a synergy from a location perspective already we 
we have our emissions, we have our plans to decarbonize and how we want to do it, we want to reduce our emissions, our energy consumption in the first place and then we want to replace the remaining part of energy and we're looking there actually at both solutions, we're also mm -hmm. looking at um, uh, at electric, at renewables for electric and, and for uh, for hydrogen, but it's a combination of the two that, mm -hmm. will, make the, that will make our dreams come true. I think that's the important thing here, right? The ambition is to achieve net zero. Mm -hmm. And really what we're trying to do is find the perfect balance between energy efficiency, which should always be the starting point for energy, any energy transition, electrifying what we can, and using hydrogen to provide not only a storage medium for when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, but also as an effective way actually of decarbonizing some of those more difficult things. Mm -hmm. you know, Batch-based production isn't always well suited to something that, you know, might be constant draw from the grid, but equally for vehicles. Sometimes we've got a lovely HGV here. A lot of really good ways to decarbonize heavy transport is to use hydrogen to give you that longer range, that greater payload, and that operational flexibility. So taken together, we believe green hydrogen is one of several technologies to help improve. Um, and then it, it really does feel that we're at this moment for hydrogen. We've had an online event about hydrogen um, in the past year. We've done some tours of potential hydrogen sites. We've seen updates to the energy strategy. Um, and I guess the question in this is how we can make sure that supply and demand scales properly at the same time. So how do companies like, like your two companies collaborate um, and also collaborate with policy to make sure that yeah, the moment is seized here, that it is supply and demand being balanced at the right time scales? Well, hey, do you mind if I start? Yeah. All right. So firstly, I have to say Prozum is very fortunate to be working with Budweiser because you know people can be quite critical of the larger companies, but actually what they do is they bring an enormous amount of stakeholders with them. Budweiser works with so many different parts of the value chain, and so working with them, what they allow us to do is to actually be able to develop several different projects with different parts of the ecosystem, work across their different sites, and so part of how we actually match supply and demand is being able to have different production facilities with different amounts of hydrogen across markets like the UK. Mm -hmm. And that actually allows us to, for things like transport, make sure there's always hydrogen available at different points within the network, but also to think about how can we benefit from you know, potentially brewing more at one site than the other site, for example. So you know, do they brew more in Magal one month because it's better wind and better solar that month as opposed to in their Salmsbury facility? How do we help them work with the elements and nature around them to actually produce in a more efficient way? These are some of the examples of things I think we can do together. And through greater technology and through working in partnership, this is the future of decarbonization, is taking that more holistic view. I don't know really if that's fair, whether you'd add to that. <laughs> Yeah, and I think from a holistic point of view, if uh, what, what Chris mentioned was our ecosystem and our supply chain, mm -hmm. uh, and one important element is our net zero ambition to become net zero by 2040 for the full supply chain. And this means that we also have to engage um, our maltsters, our packaging suppliers, and they are on a journey which is similar. They also are decarbonizing their production sites, and actually the solutions are also always similar. Eh? We, we are facing problems alike and we want to tackle these challenges together and it's good that whatever we learn from the project that we're doing together with Protium that we take those learnings and that we also accelerate their decarbonization um, future and that we build a, a more wider network of uh, infrastructure across the country and across the, um, yeah, the continent as well. And I think actually that's a really important point because there's over a thousand one megawatt sites in the UK alone that we're going to have to decarbonize. And one of the things the government has said is we need to know what does all electric, what does green hydrogen, what does biofuels look like? Build that evidence base so that lots of different parts of the value chain can see how these different technologies work and then they can take forward the best ideas. And that's one of the things that Budweiser is helping people to do is also by working with different technologies, building that knowledge base and awareness for others to go, this might work for us, this might not. And I think that's a huge value of working in partnership. So I, I know with things like CCS, the government's looking at like, where are the clusters, where are the distributed sites? Chris, is it the same with hydrogen? Are you saying that there is that sort of mapping activity in the early stages? Well, I, I think the government, as said publicly, I think it's made a bit of a mistake on this one because decentralised emissions is actually the bulk of UK industrial emissions. Food and drink in the UK is 8.4 million tonnes of CO2 out of 60 million tonnes, right? So we're talking about a massive part of the economy and a huge source of emissions. But it's also a part of the economy that consumers want to decarbonise, and that's why I think it's great Budweiser have a 2026 net zero objective for the UK. You know, and, and they are leaders who are pushing on this. It's not... 
you know, going to be those heavier foundation industries that are competing in a highly commoditized global market that have the ability to move forward. It's going to be these businesses that have a very strong sense of sustainability embedded in their brand that will move it forward. So the distributed decentralized market is what will drive green hydrogen forward in this first phase. I'd say that that has to be a benefit then because renewables can be decentralised as well and hydrogen production can. So I'm presuming there's a piece here about not producing hydrogen all in one place and then having to store it and transport it a long way to all of those Almost like you're helping support our business model. It's fantastic. No, and, and, and rightly, you know, this is the thing. Renewables, one of the things that a lot of people in the food and drink sector know is the value of producing locally and using locally. It's something that's actually very common in a lot of business models. Budweiser does this with a lot of its supply chain, as does a lot of food and drink businesses. Where we've got the opportunity to produce decentralized, distributed green energy resources, whether that's a green electron or a green molecule, we should be using them and we should be maximizing them, working with partners to be able to deliver local energy solutions. Simply producing a very large centralized site might be good for an investor, but it's not good for the planet. And the job is to figure out what's the best solution for the planet. Of course. Well, I've been told that in a few minutes we're going to be doing a brewery tour, including looking at that hydrogen HGV you mentioned. And I've been told there's also a hydrogen barbecue. I don't know if that tastes any different. (laughs) (laughs) There is a hydrogen barbecue, although unfortunately it's got Australian certification, not EU certification. So apparently that's not gas approved yet. So we've not used it sadly for today, but we will be looking to use it in the immediate future. So you'll just have to blame Brexit for this one. Got it. So no hydrogen cooked sausages. Not today, sadly. But definitely a brewery tour. Um, So I'll give us all some time to get ready for that. Thank you both so much for your time on the podcast. Thank you very much for having us. Fascinating insight there into the role and potential scalability of of hydrogen across the food and drinks industry. Uh, Thanks again to the teams at AB InBev and Proteum for organising that tour. Right, now we're almost through this second episode of Sustainability Uncovered, but um, no ED podcast would be complete without some fun and games um, because we are now entering World Cup season with the first game kicking off in just a few days. Um, first of all, uh, Sarah, predictions, World Cup, predicted winner? I definitely don't tend to get that involved, but I'd say that the obvious prediction would be either the US or Germany. US, wow, well, okay. Um, and that. I think football will be the winner. No. <laughs> Behave. Um, I think I think Netherlands have got a, a shout, but I think I think one of the South American teams, Brazil or Argentina, will be uh, favourites. Yeah, God, so no one said England. I'll go with I'll go with Brazil. Um, we'll come back to that in a month's time and, and see who that who has that right. Probably none of us, to yeah. be honest. But, we know um, that the loser is unfortunately Brewdog, who really had trouble with the ad campaign mm, yeah, well, I mean, God, around it's, it's a podcast in itself isn't it a discussion yes. about guitar anyway um, we'll sidestep that one for now um, it has just dawned on me though that we just missed out on arguably the best alternative podcast game show name of them all in the world cop but we don't have that we don't have, we haven't thought ahead enough to bring you that but we what we do have is part two of our, our top of the cops quiz um, those of you who tuned into episode one of the show a few weeks ago will of course recall that um, I wiped the floor with Matt um, not, not five points clear though, I think. So. <laughs> Three or four one up though, I think it was in that, <laughs> yeah. in that particular yeah, it game. Yeah, it was a sorry show yeah, for me. Not that I'm keeping count. Anyway, Sarah, um, just before this pod, I, uh, as I walked in, I saw you typing away frantically. Um, I assume that's because you're going to play Quizmaster for us again. I am, and I have three quick questions for you on this top of the cop. So shall we get stuck in? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're recording this on Thursday morning, and a lot of the buzz this morning has been about the draft cover text um, and what that includes and what that might say about the final text that we're expecting this weekend. My question is, how many pages was the very brief original draft cover text and how many pages is it now? Oh, wow. Clue for the how many pages is it now? It's a record length, more than 8,400 words. Oh, that's a big clue, isn't it? So we can divide that in some way by... We don't have time for maths. This is a two-part question. It's a two-part question. How long was it originally and how many pages have we got at this point? Okay. Luke, you pressed the buzzer first. One six and six six. I've gone 16 and 66. I've gone for five and 32. Matt's closer. Yours is very lengthy, Luke. It was originally just two pitiful pages and we've now got 20 pages to be picking through, um, likely to be 20 pages or more when we finally get it. Um, moving on to question number two with Matt one point up. According to Global Witness, how many attendees in the Blue Zone have fossil fuel interests this year? 
Your clue is that it is more than last year. Matt, do you know this one? I, I wrote this one, so I should, but I don't <laughs> know if I've got it. Uh, 639. Okay. Wow, I'm 215. Matt, you're definitely closest again. It's 636. Yeah. They have officially down. That's pretty close. Yeah. Um, so as it's two out of three, Matt has already won. Yeah. Um, but we're going to play the third... Vindication, that is. Yes. We don't need to vindicate you anymore. Um, but we're going to play the third and final question for funsies. And it's another fossil fuel themed questions. Last year, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance of Nations and States launched. We've had four new joiners this week. So how many members does it have now? Mm, Matt's written that down really quickly, so he knows. I don't. No, I don't. Okay, I'll go with 52. 19. It's 19 straight on the money. I'd love if it was 52. (laughs) That's Um, why why you spend your mornings reading the the daily roundups, you see. I saw that number in there. If all my predictions would be correct, we'd have like an incredibly lengthy text. We'd have <laughs> 52 <laughs> nations signed up to that. Anyway, yeah. Um, congrats. I don't know if that would be a better cop, Luke, or a worse cop, yeah, but yeah. either Sounds way. Like a much worse cop. <laughs> <laughs> Still scarred from last year. I know. Yeah. And our top of the cop this week is Matt. Do yeah. I win money? God, I didn't realise this would feel so bad. Well, it's one all. Um, there you go, well done, Matt. So. You win the vindication, vindication and Luke wins the sad microwave meal for one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you'll have to think of a non-cop related game for us to play next time. I will. Yeah, no one likes to stay on it. Uh, right, uh, I think that is just about a wrap. Um, Sarah, you want to tease us with what's coming up on the next episode of the podcast? Yeah, so our next episode is going to be coming to you all in December, which is, of course, Christmas and all the other lovely holidays. Um, but it's also Biodiversity COP15. Um, nations will be meeting in Montreal to try and uh, finally agree on this post-2020 international biodiversity Um, agreement and with that in mind we have a little bit of a nature theme going on we'll be talking about regenerative fashion um, business activism nature restoration in Africa and with our sponsor Lloyds Bank we'll be talking about financing nature-based solutions as as well Um, so your your podcast Christmas present is Hmm. a bumper episode on nature yeah looking forward to that so uh, lots to stay tuned for. Um, that really is a wrap. I must say a huge thanks to all of our podcast guests who featured in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. And a special thanks there to our podcast partner, Lloyds Bank. Until next time, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.